Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I'm your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? I am feeling very smart today. You are? I am. So I can't remember whether we said this on the show last week, since we were talking gymnastics, or if we said it for the Patreon show, but one of the comments that I made was, Canada is poised to make a move in women's gymnastics. Yes, I do remember that. Guess who got a medal this week at the World <gasps> Gymnastics Championships? Yay! So Canada won a bronze medal in the team event for the first time. <gasps> and Canada thus has earned quota spot for Paris 2024. Yay! Good for them! So I feel so smart. I will say, I mean, it's hard to kind of keep on top of all of the sports in the Olympic program. And I know oh, we follow yeah. some more than others, but like it is nice to feel smart about a sport when you're looking at so many sports. I'm just going to bathe in my maple leaf glory for a few days. <laughs> so who else I'm... got quotas? So Team USA, I saw one gold. Yes. So they have so a quota. Team, so the women in Team USA won gold. Team GB, Great Britain, got silver. Excellent. And Canada was bronze. So they nice. all now have quota spots. Nice. And we'll say that Russia and Belarus did not have a presence at this meet. So that's why they are nowhere near the medal stand. Yes, they are still banned. And this will be interesting. I was thinking about that as well, because if Russia particularly is banned from all the qualifying events, the IOC may not have to do anything for Paris 2024 in terms of banning or not banning Russia because they're not earning spots. Exactly. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. You know, another way we can feel smart is with today's interview. You will get a lot of information out of this one. Yes. So we are talking with American short track speed skater Ryan Shane. Ryan tried to qualify for Beijing 2022, but he was not able to get one of the two slots for the U.S. men's team. So he is continuing on in his quest to become an Olympian, has eyes on Milan Cortina 2026. We got into the nitty gritty of some short track speed skating basics with him. Take a listen. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. First off, short track speed skating, skating fast around a track against other people. So it's a little demolition derby-like. What drew you to the sport? I think the high speeds... And the drama, I think, is the most exciting part. And that's kind of what drew me in. Because it's just fun, in general, to skate around fast. But when you're skating around super fast, like pushing people out of your way, making moves, that's what really excites me. I think that's what drew me in. Let's talk about the track for a second. How big is a speed skating track? It's on a standard Olympic-sized rink, um, which I think is 60 meters by 30 meters. And then the track itself is 111 meters around. 
Okay, so you're dealing with 111 meters, but you also have races that are like 500 meters. Right. So you're starting on one side of the track and finishing on the other, correct? Right. Basically. So the 500 and the 1500, you start the opposite side from the finish line. And then the 1,000 meters and the relays, you'll start on the finish line. Because every nine laps is 1,000 meters. So it's going to be four and a half for the 500, 13 and a half for the 1500. And then relays, um, the mixed relay is 18 laps, 2,000 meters. Women and junior men do the 3K, which is 27 laps. And then senior men do the 5K or 45 laps. That's the relay. How do you keep track of the lap numbers in your brain? There's a lap counter, but it's a lot of personal preference whether you count in your head or not. Some people think it helps. I personally count in my head just to remind me of where I am pacing through my strategy. Like I wouldn't want to forget how many laps are to go and make a move too early. But some people I've heard try not to think about the laps because that actually does the opposite for them and makes them more impatient. The track is obviously very different from a long track. How do the skates differ between the two? So long track, they have collapse skates. So the blades are only attached in the front and they're on a hinge. So when they push the skate like folds out and then it claps back when they bring their foot into the recovery. Short track skates are fixed in two points. So they won't move at all. And then the actual setup of your boots and your blades are very different. Long track, there's not a lot of offset from the blades. They're usually relatively close to the center of your foot. But short track, you have a lot more lean. So you have you set your blades offset to the side. So when you lean, you're not hitting your boot against the ice. And then our blades, there's a bend on our blades as well as a rock, which is the top of the blade is slightly rounded. And we have much more bend and much more rock than the long track because we have a tighter radius and that helps you carve around the tighter radius. Does that mean that it's, it's when you're saying bend and rock, like it looks like the leg of a rocking chair? So yes, the rock is kind of like that, but it's not anywhere near that pronounced. And then the bend is a slight bend following the curve of where the track will be skating is. So it's like two different axis of curve on the blade. Okay. okay. Sorry, my brain many questions. Went, I know. <laughs> I'm sort of like trying to imagine this, but because I've never seen one up close. And the boots are low, aren't they? Yeah. So the boots are a little bit different too from long track. They have more streamlined boots and usually a little bit less stiff. And they, I think they come up just a little bit lower on your foot than the short track boots. And most people run two pairs of laces in their short track boots so you can adjust the tightness on lower down in your foot from higher up because just there's more force going through your feet in the corner because you have to turn a tighter radius and it can help you have more control throughout that and also since the track is small there's not a lot of straightaway so our setup is optimized for speed in the corners whereas long track has to focus on maximizing speed in the straightaways as well. So with that offset of the blade, where you place it on the boot, does that change as your abilities to like get lower and more angular? Yes. Does that change? Yeah. So starting out, like if you're learning to skate, you definitely, it would be pretty much in the middle of your foot. And then as you get better moving up 
in speed getting lower and more lean, then you slowly shift it over. And it's also, it depends on your technique because you need to, like proper technique, you have a lot of lean in the corner. So you're going to need that offset, but your style might involve less lean. So you personally would have a little bit less offset than someone else. Is there a difference between the left skate and the right skate? Yeah. So the offset is going to be a little bit different because the shape of your foot on the inside versus the outside is different because part of the reason the offset is so that you don't hit your boot on the ice. And then part of it is also just the direction of the power transferring through your foot. Because if your blade is shifted closer into the corner, you can push a little bit more to the side off of it. Now, I know we're talking about skates, but I have a body question. So is your left side of your body significantly different than from your right side of your body? We try and do training to balance it out and not get too far lopsided. But there definitely are differences because your legs have to do slightly different actions. And maybe not so much physical differences in the muscles, but your feel on each leg is completely different. And you like, there's no way you could really go the opposite way because your legs learn to go one way. Has anybody studied whether left-handed people have an advantage in this sport? <laughs> I don't know that I've ever heard of left-handed people having an advantage, but... Your natural turn is going to be to the left if you're left-handed. Yeah, but... I mean, that's just, it's derby direction. That's what I would say, Allison. I officiate roller derby and they have the same problems, Ryan. But like, that's the way the track goes. That's the way all of the, the directions, if you're in a circle, it I all think goes counterclockwise. It would have an advantage though. Well, but also you're swinging your right arm on the outside. So maybe it would be better to be right-handed. Oh, okay. We're putting this in the brain. We've got to find us a PhD for this. So when you first started to skate, not this skating, but the when you were a little kid and you put on your first pair of skates, what kind of skates were they? They were figure skates. Okay. So how does the blade differ from a figure skate blade? So a figure skate blade, the bottom of it is like an upside down U. So there's two, the two edges are separated and there's like a little gap in the middle. And then the blade is much more rounded and there's a toe pick on the front. Short track blade is going to be longer, thinner. The bottom is flat and there's right angles for the two edges instead of the U shape underneath. And then there's a bend on the blade and the rounding or the rock on the bottom is much less pronounced. How long do a set of blades last typically? At the elite level, probably around a season. And the boots? Boots, depending on like accidents or anything, usually a couple of seasons, maybe two or three. A lot of people like to get brand new boots right before Olympic seasons just to be fresh for qualification and whatnot. But it really depends on how much wear and tear and how much racing you get in. Because what does a new pair of boots do versus a broken down pair of boots? So if they're really broken down, they might not be stiff enough and they might not be supporting your foot in the right way so they're custom molded and that allows you to get a real feel through the ice through your boot and if they're broken down they might be looser in some areas or not quite as molded onto your foot anymore and if you have too much wiggle in your boot you're going to lose the feel for the ice okay so you're still pretty young is your foot stable in terms of growth I think so. Okay. 
but just right. So this has been, so if your foot significantly changed during a season, have you dealt with that? The beginning of last season, I got custom boots. I've not had any changes since that. When I was on the development team in my old boots, which were not full customs, there was definitely some changes, but I hadn't had any major changes during a season since like when I was younger, go for like four pairs of boots in a season going up in size. Yeah. It's like they come home from uh, <laughs> gym class one day and are like, mom, my sneakers are too small now. This is a little more difficult to work with when that happens. Yeah. I think at the club level, like there's a lot of like maybe rental skates or club skates that once you size up, then you can move on to the next one. And then your smaller size can go to another kid, but doesn't really work that way at this level. Uh, okay. So you have skates. Do you wear socks? So I wear stockings. A lot of people wear stockings. There's some special skating socks that are pretty thin, but you don't want anything that's too thick at all because then your foot won't fit into your boot since it's custom molded. Some people do skate barefoot. I think it's a little bit gross and also you have a higher chance of getting blisters. So that's why I wear stockings. How high up on your legs do they go? Just under my knee. Okay. And they're underneath my skin suit. Oh my God, they're wearing knee highs. <laughs> okay. Skin that suit. Makes me so happy. Skin suit. What is your skin suit made out of? There's actually a lot of different ones. The US team starting last year has a new specially engineered like wind tunnel tested suit. It's like a collaboration of Under Armour and Quick Skins. I'm not sure exactly what the material is. It's kind of like a rubber material for most of the body section and then a more fabric with like a textured pattern on it on the arms. And it's supposedly supposed to be more aerodynamic, faster, gives you performance advantage. But then the older suits and the training suit that I skate in, they're just the traditional stretchy Lycra. And do you have a helmet? Yes, helmet is required. And there's also, you wear actually two skin suits because you have, a, you have a cut suit that you wear underneath your skin suit and that's made with Kevlar fabric in case uh, there's a fall or an accident so you don't get slashed open. And that's a safety requirement pretty much starting out when you're like 12 years old and up. Because those blades look like knives. I mean, they're scary looking. Yeah. What kind of helmet do you have? So I have a couple different helmets because I'm getting a new helmet, which has a custom paint design on it. But there's a couple different companies that make speed skating helmets. So I just have a brand that fits my head well. So custom paint, when you race, though, you wear helmet covers, right? So domestically in the U.S., a lot of the races, there are helmet covers. On the World Cup circuit, usually there's helmet numbers, which are stickers on the side of the helmet which okay. then the paint design can be visible. Okay, that makes sense. The other thing I saw along with helmet covers are transponders. What is this for? So um, we wear transponders on our ankles during racing. There's an antenna that's built underneath the finish line in the ice, and that will record um, your lap times and then your finishing times. So that's how they get it automatically on the scoreboard. And the transponder time is not your official time, but it's a good predictor before the photo finish loads because the photo finish camera is what records your official time. But if there is not a close finish, they can call the finish based on transponder times. That's interesting. 
Get back on my ice list, Allison. We have a list of ice people to talk to because all ice is different. This is amazing. <laughs> on that no. topic, what makes short track ice unique from hockey ice or figure skating ice? Well, some of it goes into the composition of the water that we use. I know at the Utah Olympic Oval, they tend to use mineral water on the short track compared to pure water on the long track because it it's a little bit less glide, but more grip. And on the long track, you want glide because you have long straightaways and gentle corners. But on short track, you want maximum grip because you have a lot of G-forces through the tight corners. I can't speak for other rinks. I don't know exactly what they do. But other than that, the main differences would be the boardless pads and then the dots to mark the track. So you want grip on your ice as opposed to the slide of the long track, that which makes right. sense. Right. But you, you still need the right balance because you don't want to have so much friction down the straightaway that you're losing speed. It should be just enough grip to maximize your corners. And that's also, you might see during races, they'll pour water in the corners before every race. That actually gives you a lot more grip in the corners. So it helps go faster and not lose an edge. You mentioned pads. What is it like to hit them? The boardless pads, it's actually pretty nice. It doesn't really hurt. When you're at a younger level and you're skating in rinks where they just put pads inside of hockey boards, those kind of hurt. But a lot better than hitting the boards. Okay, worst crash you've had? Worst crash, Olympic trials, 1500 A final. I went in neck first and folded in half. Not very fun. Did you get up after that? Yeah, and I finished the race, but in last place, but still. But you finished, and you were still in one piece. Yeah, took me a lot of work, a lot of sports massage on my neck to get it fixed, but it's good now. And I did skate the rest of Olympic trials, and it didn't, it hurt, but just skated for it. Did it hurt because of the pressure of the G-forces, or because you constantly have to look in um, where you're going and your neck is turned, or? I think part of it is you do have to flex a little bit your neck to keep your shoulders in line i think also partially just because of the way i hit it the muscles were a little bit sprained so in short track there's three individual events 500 1000 1500 how do you develop a strategy for each race each race is unique in the number of people on the ice and the way that it's traditionally skated so the 500 you know every time it's going to be an all-out sprint because it's short enough, everyone at the elite level is completely capable of sprinting the entire thing all out. So there's not too much strategy to that. The 1,000 and the 15, usually you have to look at who's going to be in your race, what round it's going to be, because there's different strategies if you're in the heats versus the semifinals versus the finals, like how many people are going to qualify to the next round. All of that information, you have to think about it and process it. And there's tons of different options to then narrow down how you think you're going to skate, what your strategy is going to be in that race. Part of the strategy has to do with running from the front, running from the back and passing. And I know there's lots of rules around who can do what. So let's talk a little bit about how you pass and what's allowed. So the rules on passing, they're complicated and most people don't really understand them. Essentially, you can't make contact on a pass pretty much ever 
you have to finish your pass if you're on the inside before you reach the blocks that start the next corner. And then when you're making your pass, you change your lane in the straightaway and you shift over in a way that pushes someone out of the way, then that can be called. It's a lot of very discretionary rules. I know there was a big controversy at the Olympics because the officials weren't calling the Chinese skaters and then they were calling the Korean skaters for passes that either side thought should be allowed or shouldn't be allowed. So basically, the safest way to know you won't get a penalty is don't make contact and don't push anyone out of your way. Now, sometimes there is kind of incidental contact where I will see often a a skater put his or her hand on the back of another skater. And it's almost like, excuse me, I'm here. Is there some sort of standard of communicating between skaters who are racing against each other? Usually, I would say if a skater is putting their hand on the skater in front of them, the most likely reason would be they built up some speed to make a pass or to try something. And they knew they weren't going to be able to complete it cleanly. So they're going to maybe not push to burn off a little bit of speed. They're going to get a little bit too close to the skater in front of them and just put their hand up so that they don't run into them. I would say the communication in a race between skaters, a lot of it is you might be building up a move and someone can sort of see you out of the corner of their eye and they're going to shift over. It's kind of nonverbal positioning. There's a little bit like if someone really wants to take out a race from the front, you can kind of see the way that they're going to lead and other skaters might see that and understand that maybe they're going to take advantage of someone else who wants to lead. But I don't think that there's really a standard of communication. It's just just trying to read what your opponents are doing and what that means. Is there ever talking among the racers? Definitely in the heat box, there's talking. I would say there's definitely some shit talking, but also people will say, oh, this is a feat. Like, we already know these are the two strongest skaters in this race. So those two skaters might discuss, hey, we know we're going to qualify from this round. Let's just sit at the back, maybe make a move at the end because it's going to be easy for us. And then maybe in a, in a semifinal, someone will say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm out of the overall standings. I'll just leave this out for you stuff. I don't know that it's really ever truthful. People try and get in each other's heads a little bit, but there are conversations. What is the heat box? Where you stage the lineup, there's a competitor steward who checks to make sure everyone who's in the next round or the next race is there, lined up. And then from there, that's where you go onto the ice for your competition. Is it in fact hot? No. (laughs) Usually it is very cold. And you have to bring blankets and jackets to make sure you stay warm because you don't want to be cold getting on the ice for your race. Do you take off your skates between races? Always. Always. Even if there's 10 minutes between races, it's better to take your skates off. It takes maybe two or three minutes to take your skates off and put them back on another two or three minutes. And even if you only have a very short window of time, it's better to get a little bit of warm up in there let your feet out of your skates for a moment. Um, And then when you tie your skates, they can be exactly how you want them. And they haven't been maybe sitting in your boots, getting a little bit looser. So you kind of want to time it to put your skates on at the last minute you can before your race. But usually it's better to be safe rather than sorry. You would hate to not have your skates on when they call your race. There is another skate question that came up that I remembered that someone asked during Beijing. Are there guards for those blades? Yes. Yeah. You'll see the skaters in the heat box. They'll be wearing the guards. They'll step onto the ice 
through the pads of the door that opens up, step onto the ice in their guards, take off their guards, and then hand them. There'll be someone who will bring them down to the exit. And when they're getting off, put their guards on on the ice and walk off. So you never want your blades to be touching something that's not ice or guards. I'm still hung up on passing people. Maybe it's when you're in there and you can see and... We're getting really old, Allison, because it's not the Matrix is probably not a good reference anymore. <laughs> but you know, the Matrix opens up. Like, is that how you just start seeing holes, or how does it work? How really do you pass somebody with so many rules? So there are some times where there's just an opportunity opens and you have to go for it. But most of the time, to make a pass, the goal is to change your speed from the skater in front of you. And there's a couple ways you can do that. Because there's no way you can get by someone if you're skating the same exact speed as them. So you can adjust the track that you're skating and maybe take a little bit of a wider or deeper entrance into the corner, build up a little bit of speed. So when you're on the exit, you're going faster. You could back off from the skater a little bit to take an extra step into the next corner and have a little bit of overspeed on them. Or say you got distanced earlier in a race and you're able to close the gap. That's another chance where you might have more speed than the skater in front of you. And you can use that. Or the last thing, skater in front of you could slip a little bit, make a mistake. And that's an opportunity that you might want to take advantage of. When you see someone slip, how quickly can you react to avoid the crash? And how? So it depends. all depends on where they slip. You, If they're in the corner, because of the G-forces, if they slip, they're going to go flying outside into the pads. So usually... If you can stay tight on the blocks and you see someone, when you see someone slip, you'll end up inside of them. Where it gets tricky is if you're further back in the pack or maybe on the exit of the corner or if they stumble in the straightaway and maybe someone's sliding out, someone in front of you tries to come inside of them, blocks off that room, and then you start having to kind of weave around and really pick your way through. That's an, actually a benefit Sometimes in racing, you might be giving up draft, going closer to the front of a race, but you also might be avoiding someone slipping that you're going to have to dodge and waste energy catching back up after that or risk crashing yourself. Do you prefer running from the front or the back? I usually like to be at the front, but there's a time and a place for both. And I know when I need to be at the back and it's better to be worth more beneficial than to be what's most comfortable. What muscle groups are you using while you skate and what needs to be strong? Pretty much everything, really. There's a lot of core strength that it takes to maintain good technique. Obviously, quads are huge. That's where most of your power is generated, the quads and the hamstrings. And then your calves are also important for maintaining a low position and getting as much power out of every push as possible. And since your back has to be low to stay aerodynamic, all of your lower back muscles especially have to be strong. And then even your, your upper body, your chest, and your arms have to be strong for relay pushes to maximize the amount of speed you could give to your teammate. Glad you brought up relay. We were so confused by the relays in Beijing when we were watching them. That's usually what people say when they watch a short track relay for the first time. Okay, so skaters were coming on they were going off it's not like the four by 100 swimming or the four by 100 running where it's just you pass off and the next person does their distance this was back and forth so how does this work exactly so in a relay so the skater that takes 
starts in the starting line is the first one to be skating the relay. Then when they make any sort of physical contact with another teammate, that teammate becomes the one skating the relay. So it can be a push, which is what you're supposed to do, or you might miss an exchange and it might be an arm sling. Or if someone falls, you might go just tag them to take the relay. And then typically in the men's and women's relays, skaters are going to usually do one and a half laps at a time. And the skater who is next in the order for their team will be building up speed on the inside, trying to time it perfectly. So at the end of the one and a half laps, they come out right in front of their teammate and the teammate can give them a big push to help build a little bit of speed. And usually all of the teams that are racing together, their exchanges usually sync up. Sometimes you'll see one country will change up the laps a little bit to exchange on an opposite side of the track from the other countries because there might be a chance there to make some moves or get an advantage from that. And then the mixed relay, usually, well, the, the rule is it has to have two women and then two men skate in that order two times through, and they have to skate, I believe it's two and a half laps and then two laps. All the other relays, as long as everyone skates at least one lap and the last person to skate skates two laps, then you can have any order. People can skate any number of times to reach the full distance. So the relay strategy is very complicated and has to change on the fly if someone crashes. Yes. I believe the Korean women in 2018, they had a race in which one of their teammates fell they were able to run out and tag their teammate and continue the relay. They caught back up, won that semifinal to make it to the final and set the Olympic record, even with the crash. So you're not over if there's a crash. Obviously, it's, it's a disadvantage, especially in a final. But if your team can react quickly and you have a strong team, you can still come back from that. How far does that push send you? It really it doesn't really give you a a difference over the other teams unless some other team has a weak push. But it's that if, if you have a strong push, you know you won't be losing ground to another team. And if you can, so sometimes you'll see a skater set up the turn going into the exchange as if they were setting up a pass. And instead of finishing the pass themselves, they'll do it by pushing and you can get a pass done on the push. And then that's another way in a relay that you can pass. Is one of the skaters the driver and sort of organizing who's going when on the ice when you have to make those adjustments? That really depends on the team and the coach. And like, obviously you'll discuss with your coach beforehand, you'll agree on a plan. And usually there'll be the skater who skates first is covering the skater who skates third in case they fall. And then two is covering four and vice versa. So you'll have someone ready to go tag if there's a fall. And then before the race, discussing with the coaches, they'll come up with a strategy of an order. And sometimes maybe some skaters will skate a little bit more or less. Just because of the number of laps in a 5K or a 3K, the skater who's finishing and the skater who's starting is always going to be doing a little bit more than the other two skaters, just because of the number of laps, the way the math works out. So you might want, if you have a, a weak link, I guess, they might skate third, and your strongest skater you want to be finishing. Where on the body do you want to push the other skater? So you push on the hips. Okay. You don't want to be up too high on the back because then they might fall forward. 
and you don't want to be like too low down because then you might just tip them over. They're not going to get the optimal speed from it. And once you're done pushing, like this is also where the chaos goes. You have to like kind of get out of the way, but then you also have to get back into the center of the rink. So yes. once you've pushed somebody, then w what do you do next? So once you push, usually what you do is you, you take a look behind you, make sure there's not anyone, any other teams coming that might you might get in the way of. And you want to move usually to the outside of the rink and coast to lose a little bit of your speed. And then you got to check the track, find the right time to cross back into the center of the ice. And usually what saves the most energy is when you're coasting and after you've pushed to let the race lap you before you come back in and then you're right synced up with them. So when you want to build up your speed, you don't have to catch up to them. So you mentioned the Korean women, but both Korea and China, very powerful in short track. Is there a significant difference between, say, the way the Koreans or the Chinese skate versus the way the Americans skate? Yeah, so the Americans... For a while, there was a, well, historically, we've had a lot of different coaches from different countries. So we've had Korean coaches and the skaters have been skating Korean style. A lot of the clubs in the U.S. do have Korean coaches. So a lot of skaters do have a Korean technique. I have more of a Chinese style technique because my coach on the development team was Chinese coach. But at the national team level, the philosophy in the U.S., is not to change your technique to fit a certain style, but to develop it to the maximum for the way you already skate. But if you see a comparison of the Koreans or the Chinese, which are relatively similar to each other versus the Dutch, or a lot of the European skaters have a very different style. The Dutch have a lot of lean in the corner without a lot of hips, and they have much bigger straightaway pushes, which is probably because of the popularity of long track in the Netherlands. But most countries have slightly different style. And a lot of the smaller countries kind of copy the style of whatever country their coach is actually from. So what would be defined as the Chinese style, for example, that you're using? So there's not quite as much lean as the Dutch. Shorter straightaways. And you want to really extend the distance out of the corner. It's kind of hard to describe because it, I know it by feel, but just the way, the position that your hips and your shoulders are in relative to a skater from a different style, it would be a little bit different. There's more hip, you push your hip more into the corner than a lot of the European styles where there's more shoulders into the corner. One thing in, in short track is that the ice gets chopped up quite a bit and in between races or heats, they have the technicians go and ice the little holes. Do you ever feel a difference in once the track's been beat up a little bit? Yeah, you can definitely feel that. You get a lot of, obviously in a training session, you don't get a ice resurface. So it's not something that you're not used to doing. But you can definitely tell if your heat's up first, the ice, there's more grip, probably faster too it's just easier to keep your keep your edges in the ice through the corner but actually the difference is not huge because they do have the ice maintenance you always have water down and they'll squeegee which will knock off any big pieces of ice that are built up and when they shift the track 
between races, that means that every race, even though you don't get the whole rink fresh, at least part of your track is going to be fresh. Do you ever get tangled up with those officials in the corner who had to replace the cones? I have not personally done it, but there have been some very infamous incidents. I think Junior World Championships in maybe 2019 or 2020 in Italy, there was a skater in a relay who was coming around the corner right as someone was replacing a block and skated straight into the technician. I think it was one of the Canadian skaters. I don't remember exactly, but I've seen the video of it and... I think they had to advance the Canadians because it wasn't their fault. So in Beijing, we saw a couple of races where, like you were saying, they advanced skaters because of various crashes or penalties. How crowded is too crowded? What races have you been in where, wait, there are just way too many skaters on the ice? Usually there aren't too many skaters because the way the rules are designed, like if there's advancements, that means that certain people wouldn't qualify. Because, for example, they could say top two plus the third, first fastest third place. If there's an advancement, the fastest third place no longer gets to advance. So usually that keeps the numbers down. Obviously, in Beijing, that didn't really work out because they still had an A final of 10 people in the 1500, uh, which is pretty crazy. But I've skated, I think, an eight or nine person A final for the 1500. Really, you have to stay at the front in that kind of a race. Because at the back, there's so much distance up to the front of the race. And there's so many opportunities to get tangled up. In training, you might do some sets where you have the whole team skating. But almost never would you do it at a race pace for that many people. What are some ways skaters get advanced even though they may fall during a race? So going back to how the qualifying for the next round works. The way it used to wait, they actually just changed the rules. If they said they're going to pick the top three finishers, as long as you're in the top three positions, if someone bumps into you or knocks you down when you're in qualifying position, then you can get advanced. The last season, they just changed the rule. It only applies to first and second position. So if you are in first or second position and someone makes contact with you in a way that negatively impacts your race or impedes you, then they officials can advance you to the next round. For example, at World Cup Trials last year, I was in, I think, second position in a semifinal. And I saw a skater coming from behind me on the inside. So I I moved in to squeeze him, essentially forcing him to make contact with me, pushing me out, because I knew that that kind of a thing, the officials would advance me in the next round because he would push me out. And then I think in Beijing, the controversy was because Instead of being physical contact, like body to body, it was blade contact. And that was very unlike by certain people. So when there's official review and they're looking at the races and everything stops, what does that do to that athlete? What does that do to the atmosphere in the stadium and those races? I can tell you from experience, if it was your race that just happened and you did something a little bit sketchy, there's definitely a lot of anxiety Maybe you take your skates off. Maybe you you don't. You just kind of nervously sit there and wait for the announcer to say something. But if you're in the next race, actually equally, there's anxiety because you don't know how much longer you have until you can race. You're worried. Maybe you're going to get a little bit cold. You know, how because there's been official reviews that have been taken one minute and there's been official reviews that have taken 15 minutes. It really depends on what happened, the video angles, what officials are working and 
it definitely does slow down the action, which is unfortunate, but it's good that you also know, say if you're the one who was taken out, that there's a chance that your race might not be ruined because someone else broke the rules and that you still have a chance to compete. Is there ever theater in short track like there is in soccer? Yes, for sure. There's ways to fall if someone touches you and you know you're in the right position, there's ways to fall or to move out that you can get yourself advanced. I've done it. I'm pretty sure everyone's done it. It's just, it's part of the game. Like you don't want to make contact because someone could use that to their advantage to get themselves advanced and yourself penalized. And then, you know, if someone touches you, you can try it and you can maybe move, like move out, show that they pushed you and give up all your positions but you're also risking giving up a chance to fight for the win and you're going to maybe end up losing and they're not going to advance you. I believe it was at the Olympics, Australian skater, Brendan Corey. There was a race, someone gave him a push and he fought back in, like no feeder, didn't want to just take it and drift out and he ended up not qualifying. And I think he made a statement. He said he would rather fight for the qualifying position then risk it on what the judges were going to see in that incident. Because then I did wonder if that's like one of the strategy tools in your toolbox. Oh, I see this person coming up behind me or they made contact. And especially in an early heat, if you know if it's going to advance you, do you use that as a strategy? I would say in an early race, it's not a good idea. It's better if you're in a race that you know you're not going to qualify from. Like every skater in this race maybe is fresh and you're super tired. They're all stronger than you. You go into the race, you go to the front, you wait for someone to do something maybe a little bit stupid and you try and take advantage of it. But if you're in an early heat and you even have a chance of qualifying, there's no reason to do that. It's more of a desperation just trying to qualify at all costs. So winning the race. Is it blade across first, body across first? What counts as The tip in it? of your blade is how they measure it. So you'll see in a lot of close races, it's called a hawk. When you try and shoot your blade across as far in front of you as you can, you kind of take like a, a shuffle and then you just reach, you like drive your foot as far out in front. And maybe there's a couple of people side by side, each doing it, trying to get their blades as far in front of them as they can. I think at the Olympics, the men's relay, bronze medal, I think, or might've been the silver medal between Russia and Italy was decided in a photo finish like that. And World Cup last year, I saw definitely a lot of races like that. And personal experience, Olympic trials, 500 semifinal, I lost out by four one thousandths of a second because I couldn't quite get my foot far enough ahead. And junior national championships last year, the opposite came from behind someone and managed to get my blade just a little bit further ahead than theirs. It's a game of millimeters, not even inches. Yeah. Kind of speaking of Olympic trials, you went in hopeful to get to Beijing, did okay, but obviously didn't reach your goal. So what are you working on in this? Like, what did you learn from the trials and what do you need to work on for 2026? Obviously, one thing is just obviously getting stronger. That's always important. And getting experience in obviously domestic racing, but also international racing to help prepare, knowing all the different strategies because you've experienced them and all the different scenarios you could possibly be in, that helps prepare you. 
for race. And then just having skated Olympic trials before, I think knowing what to expect, knowing the format of how the race works, because it's not exactly the same as any other competition. And I think all of that together. And then the other thing is skating the World Cups in 2026 and the men need to have a better finish then because if we only have two spots for the men again in 2026, that's much, very not ideal. We need to be qualifying our relay team and getting five spots. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. Uh, this helped. I, I can't. <laughs> I'm sorry because we have so many questions about speed skating. So this really helped us. I, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ryan. Ryan was selected to be a part of Team USA's roster for the Fall Short Track World Cup circuit, which started last weekend and continues this weekend in Salt Lake City. You can follow Ryan on Instagram at Ryan Shane, and his website is ryanshane.com. We will have links to all of that in the show notes. That sound means it's time for our history moment. All year long, we are looking at Albertville 1992, as it is the 30th anniversary of those games. Allison, you had two stories ready to go last week, so we're getting your second story in this week. What do you have? So we had teenager Ryan Shane on the show today. So we're talking teenager Tony Niemannen from Ski Jumping. He was part of the Finnish team, and he won gold in the team event. He became the youngest male champion in Winter Olympics history. He was 16 years, 259 days old. He beat the record of Billy Fisk by one day. Whoa. And Fisk had won gold in bobsled in 1928. So that record had held for quite a long time. But he was not done. Two days later, he became the youngest man to win an individual gold medal in the individual large hill competition. So Niemannen is most remembered not only for being a baby when he won these medals. And if you look at the video, and we'll have the link to some YouTube videos, he looks about 11. He does not even <laughs> look 16. But he was the first to win with the V style of ski jumping. So the idea... Oh the idea of the back of the skis are together and the fronts are spread. Prior to Niemannen, the champions were all jumping with parallel skis. Right. And and I remember when, when we talked about the Eddie the Eagle movie, we talked about how you were just starting to see that telemark landing appear on the scene then. So this is really the first games where that happened consistently, right? Yes, because prior to the early 90s, judges would mark you down if you positioned your skis in a V. Wow. So in the early 90s, they changed that, which allowed people to use that position. But because he was so young, that gave him an advantage because he hadn't been jumping in that parallel style for so many years and then having to change. Now, this is very interesting because over the next two cycles, everybody's doing the V positioning. Niemannen, even though he continued jumping until 2004, he never won another Olympic medal. Huh. Very interesting. So he continued, didn't win another Olympic medal, and mostly because his advantage with the V was so great that first time around, and then as everyone caught up to him, he lost that advantage. And also his voice dropped, so that may have been a, <laughs> a part of it.
Welcome to Shukflistan. Yes, it is the time of the show where we check in with our team at Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show who are now our citizens of Shukflistan, our very own country. First up, we've got some results. Tim Sherry won bronze in the 300-meter rifle event at the 2022 International Shooting Sport World Championships. Yeah, and that's his first World Championships medal. That or is. His, yeah, so he was so excited about that. And he said he had a little bit of a rough start, but he settled in and came from behind to make it to that bronze medal position. So congratulations, Tim. At the U.S. Speed Skating Long Track World Cup qualifier, Aaron Jackson got first in the 500 meter, second in the 1,000 meter, which was also a personal best time for her. She also got a personal best time in the 1,500 meter. She's qualified for the team in the 500 meter and the 1,000 meter, so we will see her on the World Cup circuit doing those races this year. Then she immediately flew from Salt Lake City to Argentina for the World Skate Game games where she finished second in the 500 and this is back to inline skating so she's going back and forth still team schuster finished 13th in the tier two men's round robin at the 2022 hearing life tour challenge and did not advance to the playoff rounds and also in curling, wheelchair curler Steve Empt skipped a team at the World Curling Tours Tallinn Wheelchair International in Estonia, and they placed second overall. So in other news, Josh Levin announced on Facebook that he has retired from the regular season of American Ninja Warrior. He is also a character in a new fantasy adventure novel called The Ninja Games, The Warrior Within by Lance Pekus and Jesse Haynes. Aaron Jackson and Chloe Kim have been nominated for AAU James E. Sullivan Award. You can vote once per day until November 9th, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. You know, that that name has so much meaning for me now that we've done a lot of historical stuff. Yeah, James E. Sullivan is not necessarily an award you want to win. I mean, you want the award. Because it means a lot. I mean, he was a bigwig back in the day, but also not the not the best person. We, we might want to work on renaming that award. <laughs> and a little bit of sad news. Sid Morantz, who was on episode 50, telling us the story of how he was Sam the Eagle at LA 1984, has passed away. So we send condolences to his family. And we have news on Shukvastan. What we, What's going on? We do. We have an official flower. It was tight. I was surprised. People had feelings about flower. So the official flower of Shukvastan will be... The flame lily. So exciting. We'll be working on the official animal next. Oh, and you will see polls and information about that in our Facebook group. Correct. Coming next week. Excellent. Not so excellent. We've got some doping news. We are and it's still... not me this time. <laughs> we are still on London 2012. This is incredible. So Russian athlete Natalia Antuk was disqualified from her 400-meter hurdles gold medal win at London 2012. She had was already serving a four-year ban from a court of arbitration for sport case that stripped her results from 2013 to 2015. This ruling was based on historical evidence recovered from a Moscow testing lab database, which further disqualified her going all the way back to July 15th, 2012, which includes London 2012's results. So 
The gold medal is now going to Lashinda Demus from the United States. She is now 39 years old, so she was 29 when she won the medal. That would have been like, what a career crown achieving a moment for her. London 2012 was her second and final games. She had also competed at 2004 in Athens. So that's got to be a little tough to be like your crowning moment, final games. Ten years later, you get the medal you won. Upgrading to silver will be Zuzana Henova of Czech Republic, and the bronze will go to Kalise Spencer from Jamaica. This is all reported by the Associated Press. Infuriating. We all know. And that it's another Russian athlete in athletics. I'm done. I'm done. I, I, you know what I really hope? Remember on 2016... A few Russians got to compete. I hope that none of them start showing up in these results. Yes, because that was quite controversial. And Sebastian Coe, the head of World Athletics, made some decisions that a lot of people were not happy about for 2016. So fingers crossed. We have a little bit of news about 2030, the Winter Games. The government of British Columbia does not support a Vancouver First Nations 2030 bid. Listener Billy posted the official statement in our Facebook group if you want to read it. Part of the reason that they gave is that they are hosting uh, some other high-profile events in the coming year. So they are part of the 2026 FIFA World Cup. And then they're also hosting the 2025 Invictus Games. So the government said, hey, we've got other competing priorities in the province, such as the cost of living, health care, housing, public safety. And we don't have a couple billion to drop on a, an Olympics and Paralympics at this time. When I read the statement, it very much felt like Cousin Jane is tired of hosting Christmas and wants somebody else to take responsibility for it this time around. This makes 2030 very interesting all of a sudden because Sapporo was having issues because of the Tokyo bribery scandal. Salt Lake City is problematic because of U.S. having LA-28. And then if you've got U.S. again for 2030, that's a little favoritism. And it's hard for the U.S. on a sponsorship level. I mean... USOPC has repeatedly said, we are ready to host whenever you need us. And they have a solid bid. They don't need to do a lot of building. They have to build some venues, I think, for sports that weren't around in 2002. But they have a solid budget. They have stuff in place. They're ready to go. It's just the competing sponsorship with LA 2028 that makes it a problem to raise money that they need. So Vancouver was really seen as the front runner, and this whole idea of the First Nations being involved made so much sense and, and gave such a, a lovely gloss to this application, which makes me wonder, hey, Nordic countries, Stockholm, do you still have your file ready? Because we're running out of choices here. Right? You got to wonder if the committee is just kind of reaching out to people. And it's tough. It was sad because on the surface, you think, oh, this First Nations bid was so unique and would be so interesting to see enacted. And we would learn so much from that organization. But when the government puts it out, like, hey, we got two other like worldwide events coming to town in the next 
less than four years, those are expensive. And maybe we're getting event overload again. Well, maybe my dream that I talked about a few weeks ago was prescient. (laughs) Again, you know, I was right about Canadian gymnastics. Maybe a joint Vancouver-Vancouver bid could save this whole thing. I'm being sarcastic, but I'm also being serious. Like maybe the way to save this is to really rethink this in a way, you know, let's do country, country bids. Why not? Right. Because you're right. The Winter Olympics particularly are having some struggles with getting cities who are interested in hosting that we know of, because that is the one part of the process we don't hear who's interested in bidding. Ed Hula from Around the Rings said there may be talk of a joint award for 2030 and 2034 because now we have so few cities who are interested in hosting the Winter Games. But I don't think that's going to happen the way it happened for 2024 and 2028 because we don't have these major beauty pageants, for lack of a better word. And 24 and 28, they did very much because they wanted to start the commission, the bid commission. So they wanted to give themselves, the IOC wanted to give themselves some time and space to set up that new process. There's no reason to award 30 and 34 together. We're not redoing the bid process again. They don't need the time and space. If anything, they need less time for host cities for things to go wrong. (laughs) Right. Like global issues or or things like that. A giant war, right? Yeah, and it's just that that the games do get more and more complex and they take more and more time to put together, it seems like. But you also have to wonder, like, how is L.A. having so much time and Brisbane having so much time to put something together? Is that detrimental in a way because you do have some staff that you are paying for for a longer time than you normally would have? Or does that make a difference? I I don't know what the costs of having these organizing committees open for years longer than you would have had does. Maybe we look into that. Well, what I really like to look into is Stockholm brush off that bid book. Oh, I so (laughs) want to go to Stockholm for Winter Games because you know it would just be so good. I'm with you. We could take a roller coaster to Latvia. That would be great. Even a hydrofoil. Somebody call the Swedes and talk them into it. We didn't mean to break up with you. It was a moment of madness. We want you back. Well, if you've got thoughts on the 2030-2034 Winter Olympics, let us know. We've got a little conversation going on in the Facebook group, and I we love hearing what you think about this. We would also like to thank our supporters who keep Our Flame Alive every week. If this show provides value to you, please consider giving back, and you can find a number of ways to, to do so at flamealivepod.com slash support. So that's going to do it for this week. Let us know what you learned about short track speed skating. You can email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at Flame Alive Pod. And be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook, where I will be posting many photos of the new national flower of Shuklistan, the Flame Lily. Excellent. So next week, we have a big show planned that is very Paris 2024 focused. 
and we'll have information that you would like to know. But as we like to say, the interview has not happened, so it doesn't happen until it happens. So knock on wood that all things work out and we will have a great interview for you next week. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And until then, keep the flame alive. <laughs>